Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Thanks so much for downloading Making a Killing. I hope you enjoyed the last episode in the series. It was so good to catch up with my old friend, Alex Gibney, to talk about the fine line between visionaries and fraudsters, from Jeff Skilling to Elizabeth Holmes. If you missed it, do seek it out. This week, we continue this theme of charismatic leadership. We explore the challenges that the people working for such a strong personality can face, and we talk about why it can lead to downfall. I'm Bethany McLean. This is Making a Killing, the show that cuts through the hype and hand-wringing to reframe the stories you thought you understood and uncover the ones you didn't know were important. Sears, which declared bankruptcy on October 15, 2018, was once a startup. It was founded in 1886 by entrepreneurs with a vision, not different, not really, from any of today's entrepreneurs with a vision. Richard Sears and Alva C. Roebuck were both in their 20s when they thought up Sears. In those days, before people could easily get to stores to do their shopping, <laughs> before there were stores everywhere, these two young men realized that there was a market for a company that could use the postal service to ship its wares. And so the Sears, Roebuck & Co. catalog business was born. Fast forward 100 years to 1991, and Sears was the world's largest retailer by revenue. According to a recent piece in Fortune by longtime business writer Jeff Colvin, its market value, calculated in constant dollars, peaked on May 4, 1965. He writes, Sears has never been more valuable than it was on that spring day, worth $92.1 billion in today's money. A few years later, Sears sales were 1% of the entire United States economy. Two-thirds of Americans shop there in any given quarter, and half the nation's households had a Sears credit card. That's dominance. How is it that this dominance could turn into a sobering, sad bankruptcy? Greatness gets built very slowly. Think of Walmart or Southwest Airlines, says Jim Collins, the author of Good to Great. Decline is just like ascent, a cumulative process. The decline of a great company only looks instantaneous because you notice it when it's acute. That's what's so dangerous about it. But there's a moment when it's obvious. Amid Kardashian mania, even Kim Kardashian's collection at Sears was a flop. The element of the Sears story that stands out to me 
and is especially relevant today, is that over the last decade plus of decline, it's been owned by a financier, hedge fund manager Eddie Lampert. Lampert bought discount retailer Kmart out of bankruptcy and then combined it with Sears in 2005. In other words, he took two already weak retailers and put them together. At least theoretically, Eddie Lampert saw value in the retailer's real estate and believed that combining two fading giants would somehow result in one stronger giant. Despite Lampert's predictions of a, quote, strategic transformation that would make Sears, quote, a truly great business, end quote, the company hasn't managed a single year of revenue growth since Lampert took over or earned a dime of profit since 2010. When its Chapter 11 filing was announced, Sears had just 700 stores open in the United States. When Sears and Kmart had merged in 2005, they had 3,500 stores. There's long been an argument, and there's now even a lawsuit, that the whole thing was really about Lampert stripping as much value as he could out of the business for the benefit of its own private equity fund. I find this element of the story particularly interesting because private equity buyouts play a larger and larger role in shaping our economy. Can we draw any lesson from Sears that can tell us whether this particular trend is a good thing or a very scary thing? The other part of the Sears story that grips me is this question. What does it take for a CEO or a business leader to spot the twin forces of disruption and destruction before they lead to an ugly end? While the Sears story has its own unique twists and turns, as every good story does, a close examination shows that its critical mistakes are universal and as contemporary as tomorrow's news. Jeff Colvin is a longtime fortune writer and really an analyst. Not incidentally, I met Jeff back in 1995 when I started at Fortune as a youngling fact checker, although I'm not sure he knew who I was for a whole lot of years. I'm so excited to be able to sit down with him today. Over his 40 years at Fortune, he's written numerous books and has covered many stories of business done right and business done wrong. I can't think of anyone better to help us understand where Sears went wrong and if its decline was inevitable or fixable and what other incumbents of today can learn from it before it's too late. So Jeff, you've said that Sears should scare us. Why? Because what happened to it could so easily happen to any company that is successful. Uh, And this is why it's so frightening. Any company that's doing well is very, very susceptible to these same errors because the factors that led to Sears' decline were simultaneously caused by success and masked by success. And this is exactly what happens to big companies that get in trouble. So greatness contains in it the seeds of decline? Always. It always does. And this is why so many times success is a curse. It really has to be regarded warily. You know, everyone loves it. I mean, this is the objective, right? You know, of course you love it. But the fact is, it is dangerous, and you better understand that. And when you say that Sears's success contained the seeds of its decline, what were those? What happens is that eventually a company gets to a point where the people who started it, the people who struggled to get it where it is, are gone. And there's no one left who remembers 
that there was a time when this was not a great organization, when it was struggling, and it was by no means sure it would survive. And there are only people who can remember only when this was a great enterprise, right? And so they have this feeling that it was somehow ordained, that this is the natural state of the world, that our company is a great enterprise. And so they stop thinking about how to, to make it continue to be successful. They, they stop being scared that anything could go wrong. And then the other thing that happens is that as you become successful, an organization gets big. And when it gets big, it's hard to make everyone understand how they should be doing what they do. And the danger then is that you just create rules and tell them to everybody. And people start doing things because that's the rule, not because they understand why it should be done. Or because it makes any sense. Or because it necessarily makes any sense. Exactly. So is there a benefit, just as there are some benefits to human insecurity, is there a benefit to corporate insecurity? A huge benefit. And that's why Andy Grove made the word paranoid famous. Because only the paranoid survive. Only the paranoid survive. This is exactly what he was expressing. And he was right. So the title of your recent story, it's entitled Seven Decades of Self-Destruction. How does it take seven decades? In other words, is this a testament to how powerful Sears was, that it took seven decades for it to fall apart? I think that's exactly right. In part, it's because we can trace the seeds of its destruction back to a period when it was still flying high, when it was still hugely successful. And so for for a time, even after, in retrospect, we can see the seeds of destruction sprouting and growing. The company appeared to be doing great, but then it still took a startlingly long time for this thing to really self-destruct. And it's just what you say. It's because this was a colossus. It was an institution in America. It was the most trusted company in America. Pause pause on that for a little bit. For people, (laughs) even my age, who don't understand what Sears was, how would you explain it to make it relevant to somebody who's 25? To some of us, we, we have this memory of the majesty of Sears at its height. Younger people have no idea. Imagine, first of all, the largest store in America. So now that's Walmart. But back then, it was Sears, and it was everywhere across America. And it was for the everyman. It was for the ordinary people. And it, as I said, it was the most trusted organization in America. They had polling which showed, and not their own polling, but they had polling which showed that. And so here was the place that you went just to get the things you needed for your life. And I can't tell you how many people I've spoken to who remember going to Sears every Saturday with mom and dad to get their clothes or tools or whatever it was they needed. It was an institution. And you know how to make it relevant for someone today is hard to because there is no institution that has that role today. Before we come back to the specifics of the Sears story, when you mentioned that the seeds of the decline started decades ago, but it took a while for them to become apparent, is there anything a leader can do to see those seeds before they become apparent? Or is this inevitably, is tracing corporate decline inevitably an act of hindsight? 
it is not inevitable that these companies will eventually fail. I mean, I suppose at some level you have to say it's inevitable because we all fail. <laughs> we all fail eventually. I mean, the oldest retailer in America, as far as I can tell, is Brooks Brothers, which is 200 years old, but it's almost unheard of. And retailers in particular seem to have a lifespan that is not infinite. But we have seen examples of companies catching their decline and somehow rescuing themselves at least for a while. So yeah, what can companies do? Well, one is trying to inculcate this feeling of paranoia, as we were describing. Another is for the board of directors to make sure the CEO is someone who will shake the place up, who will really have the courage, the motivation to take it down a new road. And frequently, the road you have to go down sounds crazy at the optimal time to make that decision. I I have often thought that maybe the number one quality required is courage, because you have to do stuff that your competitors aren't doing. It's not mainstream. It's not easy. It's an interesting word, courage. You write in the Sears story that almost every corporate demise can be traced to a blown CEO succession. And so what went wrong here and when did it start to go wrong? Well, this is the astounding thing. It really goes back to 1954. That's just incredible. Can you believe it? But it, it goes back to a decision the board made in 1954 when one of the great figures in Sears history, General Robert E. Wood. Was he really a general? He was really a general. His first, the first part of his career, he was a general in the army, oversaw construction of the Panama Canal. He was an incredible person. And then he became the CEO of Sears. And he had been instrumental in Sears becoming tremendously successful. He stayed on till he was 75, which was not good for starters. But finally, at age 75, he said, okay, I'm going to go. And the board then could have chosen what we were just talking about, the person who would say, okay, I'm not Robert Wood. I'm going to take us in new directions. And they didn't do that. They did kind of the opposite. He had stayed on so long that there were a number of executives who were potential future CEOs who were kind of lined up at the turnstile there. And they decided to give each one of them a few years. (laughs) Because they were of such an age that you could make one the CEO, he'd be 65 in three years. Then the next one would get the job, he'd be 65 in three years. Is this sort of the equivalent of give everybody a gold star? Pretty much. Yes, that's a great, yes, that's pretty much it. And the result was nobody had the opportunity to make much of a change in the place. Everyone had an incentive just to not rock the boat. And so this is really when the seeds of decline began. So is there a downside then to having the great man or today the great woman as a leader? In other words, every company is supposed to want this, right? The visionary, charismatic leader. But does that leader, perhaps because they are so visionary and charismatic and well-respected, make it very difficult for the company to choose the next leader correctly? Absolutely. We see it even today. It was much worse back in 1954 because the board of Sears was not what we would today consider an independent board. There were a lot of people on that board who were Sears. Did the concept of independence even exist back then? It it was not a concept (laughs) that anyone even talked about. Truly, it wasn't. There were a lot of Sears executives on that board. 
they couldn't stand up to the CEO. Okay, so I was so struck by this in your piece as well. We talk a lot today still about diversification, about the importance of a business being able to diversify. And I love this, that when Sears began to think about diversifying, their initial wish list of merger partners included AT&T, Chevron, John Deere, IBM, and Walt Disney. What does that tell you? <laughs> well, I tell you, that now this was interesting because they were coming at this from a sort of big picture strategy point of view. And in one sense, there was something good about this, which was the CEO at the time, who was a guy named Ed Telling, was thinking big, right? The trouble was they had, this was in the 70s when they began thinking like this. They had just decided that for reasons having nothing to do with them, retailing itself was becoming a terrible business that there were just all kinds of big picture trends, demographics and other things, inflation, things in the economy that were just going to make retailing a fundamentally crummy business. And so we better think about something else to get into. And they figured the whole world was available to them. So that's why they ended up with that list of potential partners, some of whom they never called, but some of whom like John Deere, they did obviously went nowhere with that. And did John Deere say, are you freaking crazy? <laughs> yes, that's uh, that's pretty much what they said. So they end up choosing. Well, it's fascinating, though, to pause on that because retailing, obviously, given the number of phenomenally successful multi-billion dollar retailers that have been founded since then, I mean, talk about strategy gone wrong. But so Sears ends up choosing financial services. Why financial services? As I mentioned earlier, they had this polling that said Sears is the most trusted company in America. So they thought, okay, in what industry is trust most important? And they thought, well, one of them might be medicine or something having to do with the medical world, but we really have no credibility there. But the other one they figured was financial services. That's where trust counts. And so, they, and, and they figured we do have some credibility there because we, we created and we still own all state insurance as they right. did at that time. So they thought that's the way to go. You have this line in your story that I thought was wonderful, and it's Vice Chairman Donald Crabe explaining the rationale for moving into financial services. And he says, we're going to allow Dean Witter and Coldwell Banker exposure to this tremendous customer base. So sum up what's wrong with that statement <laughs> and what, what lesson other companies can learn from how that's so wrong. That does pretty much summarize a big mistake they made, which was, they were looking at strategy from their own point of view, not from the customer's point of view. They were viewing their customers not as human beings to be served, but as a kind of natural resource to be mined. It's like, well, we have these millions of customers. Now, what can we do with them? And one answer was what you just said. Well, we can run these two companies, Coldwell Banker and Dean Witter, past our customers, and some of them will end up buying. It was the opposite of the way strategy should be done, which is to say, what do our customers want? Do we understand them well enough? What can we do for them that's going to differentiate us? Isn't that so interesting? Because you rarely hear it said that explicitly and coldly, but I think a lot of companies think that way even yeah. today, which yeah. is how can we use our customers rather than what can we do for our customers? Do you, do you think that's right? Absolutely. You hear this all the time. 
whenever I hear a company saying, we're going to do something to drive traffic. Okay, drive traffic is a term, A, that doesn't refer to the customers as human beings at all. It just refers to them as traffic. And furthermore, is referring to them as if you were talking about cattle rather than people. So you write that this plan didn't seem to look bad at the time, but it it actually turns out to be disastrous. And again, coming back to this idea, maybe just everything that was wrong was in the initial rationale for doing it. But were there other signs that they could have seen that this was going to be as big a disaster as as it turned out to be? The main reason it was a disaster is that it took the top executives' eyes off of their main business retailing. They had decided it was a crummy business, and so they just stopped focusing on it. And instead, they focused on the financial services. They made it a self-fulfilling prophecy for themselves. That's exactly right. Now, beyond that, they just sort of figured that there were all kinds of synergies and cross-selling opportunities, which are, by the way, the two leading rationales given for every merger, and they are almost always overstated and overestimated. They certainly were in this case. They thought, well, now look, how about this? We'll own Coldwell Banker, giant residential real estate business. Well, Sears is the place where families come to buy their appliances and beds and mattresses and all the stuff to fill their home. It's a natural. Well, it sort of sounded that way. But in fact, there wasn't much that they did together at all. The synergy ended up with Coldwell Banker, if you bought a house from them, giving you a coupon book to use at Sears. It wasn't much. Why do synergies turn out to be so illusory in so many cases? You've been covering this for so long. I I started my career as a mergers and acquisitions banker, very, very junior at Goldman. But even by the end of that little time, I used to joke to myself that synergies are like UFOs. Lots of people claim to have seen them, but no no one can prove they (laughs) exist. And have you ever seen them actually exist? I I mean, they're cited as, today, they're cited as the rationale behind mergers time and time again. Absolutely today. It never changes. There are two reasons it generally doesn't work. One, people underestimate the difficulty of combining organizations. Right. Getting the synergy would require two organizations to work together. They're often very different. And the difficulty of getting organizations to work well together is always underestimated. The other problem is that in a merger, typically, I mean, one could say always, I think, one company is buying the other company. Well, the other company, the company that's selling, can figure out the value of the synergies just as well as the company that's buying. And so they make sure they get paid every dime that those synergies are worth, which means that once the deal is done, there's frequently no additional there's no there's no additional value there's to be no created. There's no additional value. Out of that's it. exactly right. That's really interesting. And then back to that issue of combining corporate cultures, you have this these are my customers and I don't really want to share them with you. Absolutely. And in fact, that did happen at Sears with Coldwell Banker and Dean Witter, there were managers in Sears who didn't want to give up any of their customer information. So do you think Sears really could have been Amazon? Is DNA as important as opportunity? In theory, of course, it could have been Amazon. And in retrospect, 
they had everything. They had everything. It's just astounding. They had the catalog. So they had, first of all, a distribution network, warehouses all over the country already in place. They had the catalog operation, which sold far more goods than any Sears store could stock. They had years and years of data on millions and millions of customers. They had everything that they you needed. They literally had everything. And furthermore, although people don't, nobody remembers it, in the early 90s, Sears and CBS and IBM together launched an online effort called Prodigy, which was in part going to be e-commerce for Sears. They had and so this was when did they launch early nineties. So it's before Jeff Bezos founds Amazon before in the late nineties, right? Was founded. Before that's Amazon. exactly right. Wow. They they could see where it was going, and IBM was their partner. I mean, at the time, you couldn't do better than that, right? They they had that plus everything I described earlier, and yet. And so was it a case of was it a case of being too early? Was it a case of mangled execution or was it a case of these companies, Sears, IBM, just having having the wrong DNA at this point being too old? Well, it, it was to some extent being too early. Yeah. They could see where the world was going and they were right, but the technology still just was nowhere near what was required to make this something that consumers would actually do. But also it was just the DNA. Nobody in the company could really think in the terms that were necessary to make that a successful enterprise. You'd mentioned this earlier, but why is it that retail inevitably seems to have a shorter and more difficult life than other businesses? Why is the life cycle of, of retailer shorter? I, I asked Arthur Martinez that question yep. because he was CEO of Sears in the second half of the 90s. He was the first and only CEO of Sears who was brought in from the outside. He had been a vice chairman at Saks Fifth Avenue and had a long and very successful career in retail before he was brought in to be the CEO of Sears. And Sears, during his tenure, actually did very well. He was quite successful for a time in turning the place around. But he said it's actually a business that requires a lot of investment. There's a lot of capital in retailing. We always think of the manpower, right? The labor that has right. to be used. He said it's a high capital business. And once you get out of touch with the your public, which... You can't get it back. You, it's very difficult to get it back. And meanwhile, you've got these big costs that you've got to maintain. So you to save money, you start cutting costs, which means the stores start looking shabby, which means nobody goes to them, and it just becomes very, very difficult. In fact, there is a kind of belief in retail that once a big established retailer starts going down the drain, it's impossible to rescue. So there's kind of an asymmetry there that if a retailer is flying high, it's very easy to get it wrong and start slipping. Right. But once you've gotten it wrong, it's almost impossible to get it back. It's really, really hard. So Martinez does well at Sears, but Sears ultimately defeats him. What happens there? And why can you have a CEO who's so successful on the outside and comes in and actually does a good job, yeah. but it doesn't matter? Well, you know, he, he was there, I think, as CEO for five years which is a sort of typical tenure for a CEO. But when he 
moved on, the next CEO, who was the last CEO of Sears before Eddie Lampert came in, was the former CFO, another Sears lifetime employee, Alan Lacey, who had some ideas that were right on the money for what needed to be done. He knew that having all those mall stores was a problem, but he also had a fundamentally different concept of what Sears should be, and ultimately it didn't work out too well. So that's interesting because he had courage. He had a different vision of what Sears should be, but it seems to add a requirement to courage. Not only do you have to have courage, but you have to be right. You have to be right, and also you have to be able to rescue it. I mean, Martinez was famous for this campaign that people still remember called the softer side of Sears. I actually remember that. Right. So his point was, look, our locations are in malls. Like it or not, that's where we are. We need to become a store that works well in malls. And that means less emphasis on selling washers and dryers and refrigerators, more emphasis on selling clothing, which is what people go to malls to buy. And he knew a lot about that, and it was successful for a while. But there were other competitors who were doing extremely well in that same way. By that point, Sears had lost its inevitable dominance, and you needed not to just be good at something, but to be better. So Eddie Lampert, you mentioned him. He first buys Kmart, and then in 2004, Kmart announces it's going to buy Sears for $11 billion. Before we get to Lampert himself, is it always a recipe for disaster to combine two struggling retailers? Can you think of a time where where two, one plus one, when each one is troubled, has actually equaled three? Or does one plus one inevitably equal zero? At some I, it, point? It, when they're both troubled, actually, this was a point that was made to me in reporting the story when I talked to yeah. people. They said, look, combining two struggling businesses, whether they're retailers or anything else, in hopes that they will together be a strong business is almost always delusional. So this is the classic triumph of hope over experience, right? Yes, yes. So Lampert initially attracts this breathless praise from the media when he yeah. does this deal. And this 2004 Business Week cover story calls him the next Warren Buffett. Do you think there's ever been a, quote, next Warren Buffett, end quote, who actually has been the next Warren Buffett? Well, or is that another one of those <laughs> things, once once they call you the next Warren Buffett, should we all just run for the hills? Well, <laughs> maybe so. And of course, I, I, it's hard to believe anyone will ever be the next Warren Buffett because he's 80 eight years old, he'll be 89 pretty soon, and he's still got it. But it must be said that Eddie Lampert was an incredibly successful investor for quite a few years before he bought Sears. There was some justification for speculating, at least, that he might be the next Warren Buffett. He did really, really well with his hedge fund, and he made a lot of people rich. So at the time, That was his reputation. He had the numbers to support it. Now he says, I'm going to work my magic with Sears. Well, people could be forgiven for believing it. They could. I totally understand that. And in retrospect, when we look back, do you think that the skills required to be a great investor necessarily translate into the skills required to be a a great CEO? In fact, are are they two separate people? Yeah, they, they are. The idea that his success as an investor would transfer to success running a retailer. Now, he was not initially the CEO, but he was still initially the guy in control. He could hire and fire the CEO. So he was running the show any way you look at it. There is no reason to think that an investor, even a great investor, 
would be able to run a specific target company, and certainly no reason to think we'd be able to run a retailer. And thinking of the Buffett analogy, one of the things Buffett has always insisted on is, I don't run any of these companies, right? I own a lot of businesses, including retailers. He does not want to run them. Yeah, they strike me as two incredibly different skill sets to be able to see what might be a good investment versus being able to execute on the details of a business plan. Just strike me as night and day, like saying somebody who's a great surgeon should be able to be a great astronaut. Or maybe there's some parallels there, but quite a bit of differences as well, right? Right. That's exactly right. So Glassdoor calls Eddie Lampert Mm. the most hated CEO in America. Do you think he hastened Sears' decline or do you think he alleviated it? Would we have gotten to bankruptcy faster without Eddie Lampert or would Sears have had a fighting chance without him? In reporting this article, I asked most of the people I talked to, Do you think Eddie Lampert bought Sears really just to extract cash from it for as long as he could, and then eventually it would deteriorate into nothing? Or do you think he really believed he could make Sears a great institution once again? Because that's that's what he always said publicly. And what, what was the answer? I'm so curious. Most people I talked to said they think he really just did it to take as much money out of it as he could, that he never intended to build it. He, he just saw it as a cash cow to be milked, and eventually there wouldn't be anything left, and he would have done fine. I have to say there are one or two people who thought that he really was a, a true believer, that he really thought that he could turn it around and make it a great institution. Most of those I asked did not think that. So the overwhelming belief was cynical. It was. How do you do that today in this age of regulation and pressure from investors? How do you get away with essentially looting a business? First of all, we're assuming that that's what he was doing. You you do it by saying, you know, we're we're everything we're doing, we're doing in order to improve the business, and. You could always make the argument for whatever it was he was Spinning off the real estate, et cetera, selling some of the brands. That's right. That's exactly right. And you you, you just never waver from saying that that's what we're trying to do. And you say, well, it's not going well at the moment, but we anticipate a big turnaround two years from now. You can keep doing that forever. Listen to what I say. Don't watch what I do. That was pretty much it. And- I have to say, now a lot of people think, okay, well, he did it just to take a lot of money out of it. But since Sears stock under his tenure went from $140 a share to $0.35 a share. I had not put those numbers together. That is staggering. (laughs) That is value destruction on an extraordinary. (laughs) On an extraordinary scale. And so people say, well, if he was trying to take money out, he must have made himself a whole lot poorer with the the decline in the stock. However, I have to point out that early this year, Institutional Investor Magazine ran a long and very detailed piece in which they attempted to detail how much money he had taken out along the way. They concluded that even with that incredible value destruction in the value of the stock, he still came out ahead 
based on the billions of dollars he was able to extract along the way. That is truly extraordinary yeah. and, and really frightening and raises the larger question. In today's day and age of private equity, where you have so many private equity firms with so much money taking over American businesses, does the Eddie Lampert Sears story set any kind of frightening precedent? Or do you think all of these stories are sui generis and it's wrong to use one to cast aspersions on others? You're right. I mean, there have certainly been cases of private equity firms buying a company, levering it up, taking out gigantic dividends for itself, and leaving it an uncompetitive and carcass. Even an uncompetitive carcass. That's exactly right. So it has happened and it's nothing new. And it's legal. And if you own the business, you can do what you want with it. So the Sears thing, it really depends on what you think he was doing and whether he was really just trying to extract as much as he could from it. It's different only in the fact that Sears was such an institution. Yeah. Although that that said, I hear you that intent matters. But at the end of the day, how many employees of Sears have lost their jobs and no longer have employment? And so whether whatever his intent was, this is the larger picture of what happened. And I can't help wondering what we're unleashing in this day and age where private equity is doing this time and time again, perhaps on a smaller scale, but all combined, not on a smaller scale than Sears, right? That's exactly right. And of course, that was what this came down to ultimately over the years under his ownership. I mean, yeah, there were hundreds of thousands who lost their jobs. And Sears filed for bankruptcy last fall. And at that time, the creditors wanted the place just liquidated. There were a few hundred stores left. Let's just sell them, sell the merchandise, sell the fixtures, sell the chairs, shelves, sell everything, pay back the creditors and the vendors as much as you could, and that's it. And the bankruptcy judge wouldn't do it because he said, if we do that, 40,000 people are going to lose their jobs right away, and I'm going to let this continue not liquidated. I'm going to let it continue in bankruptcy. Or actually what he allowed was then for Eddie Lampert to buy the assets of what had been the Sears company. For a paltry amount, So that this can continue and maybe, at least maybe some of those people can keep their jobs. And even if they can't, they'll have some time to prepare before they have to do something else. What do you think Lampert's motivation is in doing that? Is there some value still left to extract from Sears? Is he trying to put a gloss on it to make it look better after it's all over? And he's allegedly, at least according to institutional investor, gotten his money out. What, What do you think his motivation is? It's hard for any outsider to know. It is certainly true that there is still some value there. There is still value to be extracted. I think you reported that $13 billion in sales in the last year. That's that's, that's actually the remnants of a colossus, but... Yeah. but it's, all, it's still a lot of it's money. It's still a colossus, Yes, right? it's still yeah. a large business. So I was reading a piece by a former Sears executive, and he basically said, just shoot the thing and put it out of its misery. And he coined a phrase I had never heard before, which was dead brand walking. Do you agree with that? Do you think there's a way to salvage something that's meaningful? Not really, no. I think dead brand walking is a pretty good way to say it. I cannot imagine any way that the Sears brand could have cultural relevance 
in today's society. Young people never heard of it, and everything that it brings with it is just so antithetical to where America is, where shoppers are today. It, 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 the only way it could ever happen <laughs> is kind of like Abercrombie and Fitch. You may not remember. I don't know if you people know this. Abercrombie and Fitch was a retailer here in New York. It sold sort of sporting goods, but high end. It had a, a store that I remember on Madison Avenue. It's where Theodore Roosevelt outfitted himself to go on safari in the early 20th That's century. That's what Abercrombie and Fitch was. Well, it deteriorated, like it seems every retailer does eventually, finally failed and went completely out of business and disappeared totally from the face of the earth. Then, many years later, well, at least 15 years later, someone else bought the name and used that to create what we now think of as Abercrombie and Fitch. But it was because the world had totally forgotten what the brand meant, so he could create a brand from scratch. So maybe in 15 years, my girls will be shopping at Sears. <laughs> they might be, and they will have no idea what it once was. Thank you so much for being here today. This was really fun. Thank you, Bethany. A great pleasure. What shocks me most about the Sears story is that decisions made before Eddie Lampert was born doomed his deal even before he did it. It makes what Jeff wrote all the more obviously true. We should be afraid. We should, especially in these days of speed and changes, when it's unlikely that a company would be granted a full seven decades to chart its course to bankruptcy. There aren't any easy tells that the crisis has been set in motion, but perhaps an awareness that it might already be in motion is the best companies can do. As Andy Grove, the former CEO of Intel, so famously said, only the paranoid survive. Making a Killing is a co-production of Pushkin Industries and Chalk and Blade. It's produced by Ruth Barnes and Rosie Stouffer. My executive producers are Allison McLean, No Relation, and Megan Casey. The executive producer at Pushkin is Mia Lobel. Engineering is by Jason Gambrell. Our music is by Jed Flood. Special thanks to Jacob Weisberg at Pushkin and everyone on the show. I'm Bethany McLean. Thanks so much for listening. Find me on Twitter at BethanyMac12 and let me know who you've enjoyed hearing from. <laughs>